Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover Desperation, Part 3, The American West, Legendary Shadows. Let's start the show! Having taken refuge in Desperation's abandoned movie theater, The American West, our ragtag group tries to figure out what is happening, sharing their stories. The newest member, Audrey Weiler, a young geologist at the mine, fills in some more details. However, Tack has plans. It sends a cougar into the theater, which kills the veterinarian, Tom Billingsley. Before Billingsley dies, he shares a small detail he noticed that leads to Audrey being revealed as one of Tack's minions, who is trying to kill David. While the group is distracted, Tack, now in Ellen Carver's body, snatches Mary Jackson. David, unconscious from Audrey's attempt to strangle him, takes a walk through the land of the dead and speaks to a man in a Yankees cap. With the storm winding down, the group realizes it's time to leave the theater. We gotta do something about these long titles. Yes, it's a little crazy that King's doing all this weird stuff, right? It's part three, it's the American West, it's also Legendary Shadows. Yeah, like, this is something that, Jay, I've thought about often, but never really tried to figure out what the deal is. But when I was a kid, sometimes you had books and they, they were chapter books and the chapters would be number one, two, three, four, five, six. And every once in a while you get a fancy book and it would have chapter one and the chapter would have a title as well. And you'd be like, Ooh. oh, okay. Yeah, those were fancy. Like the wardrobe in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, for instance. That was what I assumed you were going for there. <laughs> I was trying to think of one of the kids' names and so-and-so goes through the wardrobe. Anyhow, but for the most part, you know, you don't need to go into a bunch of different names, right? You get your name of your title and, and that's it. King is interesting because you and I come from a world in which we have to format text a lot and we mm -hmm. have titles of courses and then subtitles and subheadings and page titles, et cetera, and the type of work that we do. And we give that a lot of thought. And I've often given a lot of thought to like, if I was an author, I think I would try to be consistent about how I do things. So if I was writing a book and my first few books had chapter titles, then that would probably be the format I go through all the time. But King's unique in that sometimes his novels are divided up into books or parts or sections. And then other times they're in chapters and sometimes there's sub chapters and sometimes there's headings for the chapters and sometimes there's headings for the part, etc. And then other times, I think he even has some books. I want to say that there are no chapter breaks at all, that it's just one continuous novel. Mm -hmm. I, I want to say like Rose Matter or Gerald's Game might be examples of those. And here in Desperation, like you were hinting at, he like goes over the top, right? Yeah. Like the book yeah. is very simple. The book's just Desperation. And then he's got, which is nice for us in planning the episodes, is five parts. I'm like, all right, part one, two, three, four, five. But then each of the parts has a title. And then they have a colon with like a subtitle to the part. And then he's got chapter breaks within each part. And then the chapters sometimes have subparts. It's just sort of this crazy, weird formatting. And I don't know if there's a reason for it or if I like it or not. And there's probably a academic paper in it if somebody wants to write it. But it, <laughs> it, it was very curious to me. 
Yeah, I guess that's the difference between what you and I do for a living where we follow style guides and consistency is actually important. It makes a difference in terms of how well people understand our content and the effectiveness that it can have. What King's doing is a form of art and you don't have style guides for art. You have techniques, you have, you know, frameworks, but it's where you break the rules and bend the rules. That's where the art comes to life. He knows that he can have the same I guess, chapter breakdown in every single book he writes, but he's not working that way. He's an artist. He's doing whatever feels right for any particular book. And in this one, I guess these long drawn out title, subtitle, 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 subtitle thing, that was doing it for him. And here we are. And it's funny when I was a kid and I would, it, it wouldn't matter to me because when I would read a King book, I would just keep reading the King book, mm-hmm. no matter how he broke it up. Now, as I'm older and I don't have as much time to read, I do appreciate a lot of breaks because I'm like, oh, here's a good stopping point. I'll put my bookmark in or, or pause here. Um, and it helps, like I said, you and I with planning the podcast. But, you know, in the old days, it'd be like uh, chapter one ends and chapter two. Who cares? I'm just flipping the page and going through it. Like, okay, mm-hmm. if anything, I was probably upset because here I am paying 30 bucks for a hardcover and a bunch of the pages are blank pages to get to the next chapter. It's like, this page just has a three on it. Why am I paying for that? <laughs> this page intentionally blank. <laughs> Anyhow. All that to say, Jay, I do think, as you said, there is an art to what he is calling these chapters and that there is perhaps a deeper meaning to to this and and, and sometimes even dual meaning. So, Oh, for sure. We did do this with the previous ones and we probably won't do it going forward, but let's talk about part three, the American West, colon, legendary shadows. Why all this? What's he telling us here, Mr. Russo? Well, the first one is the American West is, as you mentioned in the recap, is the name of the movie theater where they're all hiding out. So that's the most straightforward meaning of that and a reason to include it in the subtitle. But the American West is also where they are geographically. Mm. They're in Desperation, Nevada. They're in the American West. Yep. And that has very important connotations for the culture and even the, uh, maybe even like the Hollywood version of the place. And that's kind of important too, because it connects it to the theater too, right? It's like when we think of Westerns, we think of these desert places, the tumbleweeds, the cowboy hats, the horses, things like that. And there's a lot of that present in this book. Yep. So we are in a theater called the American West, and we are in the American West. I'd say that that warrants some space in the title for part three of this book. Yeah, especially since this is almost like a bottle episode of TV. Mm. All the action takes place within the theater. Um, There are maybe one or two scenes from tax perspective, but... I thought you said for tax reasons. For for tax reasons, they have to have one or two. (laughs) No, from tax perspective. um, But ultimately, 95% of this section takes place directly in the theater. And it ends with them deciding we need to get out of the theater and and go to our next place. So, yeah, I I totally agree. Like, it's sort of like an establishing shot, the American West. And you can sort of see the section starting out with maybe a long camera shot of the marquee Uh saying the American West and whatever movie was the last time that the theater was open and then go in. All right. How about Legendary Shadows, though, Jay? Uh, This one, this is one I really like. Legendary Shadows is part of what Johnny Marinville sort of disparagingly talks about when he's talking about Billingsley being one of these old men who would hang out in the theater and just get drunk. And they would cast 
their legendary shadows on the movie screen because they were just sitting around telling old stories, feeling sorry for themselves. But another meaning for this is what was projected on the movie screens for real when it was an active theater. The legendary shadows were the movies themselves. They were the larger-than-life actors that appeared on that screen. And King writes this like mini love letter to <laughs> cinema in this section where he talks about how the projection is sweet, this little office cubicle-sized space. He describes what was probably the scene when the projectors were finally removed from the theater when it was shut down, that everything was exactly as it had been uh, on the day when five cigarette-smoking men from the Nevada Sunlight Entertainment had come in, dismantled the carbon filament projectors, taken them to Reno, and that's probably where they still languished, in a warehouse filled with similar equipment, like fallen idols. Mm. The fallen idols! It's, it's, yeah, it's like, first of all, I'm picturing the end of Indiana Jones. Like, <laughs> yes. This giant warehouse filled with these relics of uh, a bygone era of of cinema where you had these giant projectors. They were clattery, baking hot dinosaurs that raised the temperature in the room. Yep. And there were cutouts where they had shown their swords of light and projected their larger-than-life shadows. Gregory Peck, Kirk Douglas, Sophia Loren, and Jane Mansfield, a young Paul Newman hustling pool, and old but still vital Betty Davis torturing her wheelchair-bound sister. I know... Anybody who reads King knows that he loves the movies. Yep. He really, really does. And you see it come through here. And the fact that he set the scene or this whole section of the book in a movie theater, and then a pivotal moment takes place in the projector's booth, there's a reason why these places are almost holy to him, I would say. And that suits the story. Yep. Especially this type of theater, which many of our listeners may never have experienced in their life, right? Mm -hmm. Like this isn't a multiplex where you're sitting in a in a small room that's basically three walls and a screen and a bunch of seats. Like this is a theater, right? Like uh -huh. there's a screen, there's curtains, there's potentially a backstage because not only was this used for films, but it was used for, you know, local politicians coming on stage, uh shows, any any sort of thing like that. And it has really nice seats and it's got a balcony and there's probably something on the ceiling that's some sort of artist design like this is a theater it hasn't been chopped up into into a bunch of little theaters so somebody can make a little extra money and it would be the pride of the town with its marquee mm -hmm. and so it's natural for for people to be there and calling it the american west when it's out in the american west and knowing that this is where all the action in town took place and then it falling apart is probably something else that King's trying to say, right? Like this is gone. Yeah. This is a different time, much like in the regulators where, which was based on a, a film script, remember? And it was very cinematic. Like this is small town, Ohio in a very idealized way. Same with this movie theater and an idealized version of, of what the movies could be. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the legendary shadows are that actual movie star legendary shadows were on here, but then also the sarcastic Johnny Marinville's description of Billingsley is mm -hmm. he and the old farts get drunk and, and their shadows are on the stage. And then there's one more thing here, right? Yeah. This whole idea of the metaphor of, of Plato's cave and how sometimes things are just shadows on the wall and how can you know if they're real or not? 
it's probably worth delving a little bit deeper into this whole idea of Plato's cave and belief and what that means and how one of our great philosophers, Plato, came up with this metaphor, this way of talking about things. And then independently, the young boy, David, who's questioning his belief in God at one point, sort of comes up with this on his own, mm -hmm. which is cool. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we've talked about Plato's allegory a time or two on the, the podcast already. But yeah, I think that's that's the remarkable thing that David, who has not studied philosophy and likely isn't aware or, or at least directly aware of, of Plato's allegory, is using his own allegory to try to explain or find a way to understand how there's always another layer of comprehension. So, which is why Plato's allegory of the cave works perfectly here and David's accidentally using it in exactly the right way. <laughs> it comes through in this idea that there is a difference between not believing and believing. And it, I think it's near the end of the section that the spiritual state of unbelief is desperation, mm. which you and I both called out because one, it's a, it's a very interesting line that there's a lot to unpack there, but also because the word desperation is is what King is saying is the spiritual state of unbelief. And that's the name of the town and the name of the book. So this must mean something. And King's calling this out for a reason. I know we like to have our Odenkirk moments and, and, uh, <laughs> and the like, but this is King like putting a, you know, he's almost hitting us over the head with it. But I, I think it works. I, I don't think he, he goes quite too far, but it's really important to the story that characters believe, not necessarily in God, but they believe. It's the belief that is going to be the key to their surviving another 10 minutes in this terrible situation, right? So it's worth it to explore what the opposite of belief is. And it's not disbelief yeah. or a lack of faith. It's unbelief. And King is being very specific here. And then he explains what is that state. And that state is desperation. And I love how all of those other uses and meanings of the word desperation just kind of layer on top of each other so splendidly here. Like you said, it's the title of the book. It's the name of the town. It is the spiritual state of the characters who are the, the antagonists of this story. So it, it's really, without this counterpoint, it's harder to make sense of and appreciate the state of belief that is vital. Yeah, specifically, there's a quote, not disbelief, but unbelief. The first is natural, the second willful. So the idea to not believe something, to be to disbelieve that, like that's natural in King's opinion. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Like if I had never seen or heard of an elephant before and you said, oh, there's a 4,000 pound creature that has a long nose and stomps around, oh. but is also a very intelligent creature and has big ivory horns, I'd be like, what? I don't believe that. But for then you to show me a picture and then show me like a skeleton and then for me to say, nope, I don't believe that you're, you're making shit up. Like that's the difference, right? That's willfully being unbelievable and not believing in something. And, and that's mm -hmm. this sort of faith in God that, that, that David's talking about, right? Like something speaking to him Yep. and it would be easy at first to say like, I don't believe in God. But then when you have something speaking to you and saying like, I'm God and I'm causing miracles, then there's this, well, you have to be very willful to not believe that and, and, and do something. And, and that's what gets you to desperation, right? Like if you're willing uh -huh. to, to, to go that far to just sort of doubt everything, then, then why, why do you have any sort of presence at all to think that anything good is going to happen to you? Right. 
So you mentioned how an important scene happens in the projection booth of the theater. And that's when Audrey attacks David. And David has gone there and starts to pray mm-hmm. because he feels like this is a time when I need to do something. And what's interesting is he's praying, but he's praying because he's not sure if he's losing his faith and believing in God at this point. Um, and he knows that he needs to pray because it's at times like these, he says, when he felt really in need of God, the front of his mind was serene, but the deeper part where faith did constant battle with doubt was terrified there would be no answer. And he doubted God's existence. I sort of thought it was interesting that it was the deep part where he didn't have his faith. Like it was easy to have faith on the outside and be like, yeah, I believe in God. But like deep down, he's like, wait a minute, should I be leaving this? And this is where I have doubts. And this is why he has to pray. And then as he continues to think of this, this is when he comes up with the the same allegory of the cave. He says, well, people could make shadows that look like animals, but they were still only shadows, minor cricks of light and projection. Wasn't it likely that God was the same kind of thing? So in other words, something made up by God or, or something made up by people, right? Which ultimately I think is what he's getting at when his reverend friend tells him to read the Bible. And he's sort of like, well, there's a lot of politics in this. And I wouldn't expect that. And it's because, of course, because mm-hmm. the Bible was written by other people, right? Right. And that's why David doesn't have this real need to go to church. Because again, that's just people telling him stuff when he's got this, what he thinks is more of a direct connection to God. So like, I'll just do my own thing. Why do I need anybody else? And if I think about it too much, it's going to make me think maybe there isn't a God or, or that there's something I'm missing. And that's starting to play on that disbelief and unbelief, right? Like it's at first, it's one thing to be like, okay, maybe I don't believe this, but then to start to question it makes it worse. But uh, ultimately he has this, I don't know vision walk through the land of the dead mm-hmm. and he's talking to people who obviously are dead including he finds out that his reverend friend has died right like the, the, yeah, the person yeah. the yankee cap tells him that um but meanwhile he's getting ch- almost choked to death by audrey and mm-hmm. dying on the outside totally oblivious as to what's happening yeah you said a moment ago that it was interesting that david felt like it was easy to have faith on the outside but deep within it was harder and I kind of feel like that makes a, a, a kind of sense. Like you can say you're a follower of a certain religion. You can uh, adorn yourself with the symbols of a religion, but not truly inside your, your mind and in, in your heart actually ascribe to any of the tenets of that faith. And it can be entirely a performance, mm. right? And I think that David is in reality, and this speaks to what you're talking about, with the lack of the church thing, I think he's the flip of that. He is in the deepest recesses of his mind and soul. He has this connection to this supernatural thing that has happened to him. In his mind, it has taken on the form of of God, like capital G God, the Christian God talking to him. And that's where um, he's found like, he, he's gone to like, like something real happened to him. He has something deep inside of him. And now he's in his quest for answers to explain it, he latched on to a pastor. And so he got a Christian God explanation and was pointed to the Christian book that talks about all this. Maybe if his neighbor had been, I don't know, a, a Buddhist priest or something like that, he would have said, yeah, what you did was <laughs> you, you had a connection to God for a moment there. Here are the, the Buddhist scriptures. Mm. And he would have said, oh, this is full of politics too. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> but whatever, it's just, he started from within and worked his way out. Whereas I think for most human experience, we start on the outside and 
And for those of us where this does happen, it works its way in. Yeah. And so I kind of feel like his faith, for lack of a better term, is genuine and doesn't require the accoutrement. It doesn't require the performance at all because it just is. And I think that his analogy of the cave shadows is apt, but it's like something he doesn't need to worry about. God isn't showing him just facsimiles and shapes and silhouettes. God is telling him real things. Like he knows that his priest friend is dead because he was in the land of the dead. He has information that he wouldn't otherwise have. It's interesting because it, you know, he's, he's questioning his faith. He's coming up with these ideas on, on why it could potentially happen. And then he's talking to this man in the Yankees cap who may or may not be God. I don't know. Like, but there's a person walking beside him who's at least guiding him in some way. So and sometimes there are two sets of footprints in the sand and sometimes there are just one. And, and sometimes that one of the sets of footprints is wearing a Yankees cap. It just, that's right. <laughs> it's weird. And, and it, it comes out like David actually has a fight with this person who's telling him like, you were put on earth to love God. And David says, no, and serve him. David, no, fuck God, fuck his love, fuck his service. And then God can't make you do anything you don't want to. And he says, stop it. I won't listen. I won't decide. Do you hear? Do you? And then the, the person says, shh, listen. Not quite against his will, David listened. When it comes out of this whole thing of not disbelief, but unbelief, the first is natural, the second willful. This is not against his will, he listens. Like this is, this is a, obviously a turning point in the novel, I think, for, for David and, and these questions that he has. And it's no coincidence that King puts it at the end of this section of the book, part three, so that, that we know that this is a key turning point for David and, and, and things are going to shift on this. I think we're almost at the middle part of the book, da, 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 da. It's all there uh -huh. for a reason. Um, and it's sort of the, you know, you think the climax or the main action of this is Audrey trying to choke David to death, but this is really the, the fulcrum probably and the more important action. All right. I have two questions for you. One, who do you think the guy in the baseball cap is? And two, who uses their baseball cap to wipe sweat off of their neck? Because that's what it describes him as doing at one point in, in David's Land of the Dead vision. Um, I mean, maybe a pitcher does. I don't know. I, but not really like that'd be awkward just, yeah it yeah it doesn't seem i don't work. think of a yankees cap as something that would be like absorbing sweat <laughs> yes. yeah yeah it's sort of weird that the yankees cap like yeah i don't know who the guy in the yankees cap is like it's not reggie jackson <laughs> if that's what you're asking me no no i, I didn't mean like which, which, <laughs> which yankee, yankee player was it is it god or is it one of the archangels is that the type of thing you're asking i don't know yeah yeah. Is it Jesus? Is it God? Is it... I, I wonder if they say so much that he, he being David, enjoys baseball and he collects baseball cards, that for whatever reason, this is what he pictured, you know? Mm. It's like Ray in Ghostbusters. It's the first thing that comes to his head is the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Maybe the, uh -huh. first thing, the first thing that comes to David's head is a Yankees player. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. It just seemed like, I don't know. King being a Boston fan, he'd put a guy in a Red Sox cap if it was really going to be Jesus or God. So my question had no team or, or sport related <laughs> aspects to it at all. Uh, you're, you're focusing entirely too much on the fact that it's a Yankees cap rather than just a cap. Um, I think that King had a really specific image in mind of, of not maybe not a, a certain person, but an archetype 
yeah the type of radio and the time period that the radio implies and the baseball cap and the two stickers that are on the mm-hmm. radio one is the peace sign and the other is the smiley smile that we yep. so associate with Randall Flag it makes me think of like somebody from Vietnam mm. which goes along with the Ho Chi Minh Trail yep kind of fantasy that David had with his friend and and their lookout tower and it is in that lookout tower that they go on their kind of magic carpet ride and look all around. Right. He also had scars on at least one wrist of failed suicide attempts. Yep. But could those also be stigmata? Potentially, right? That definitely comes to mind. There's so much going on here. I just, I have no answers and not even any real guesses here, but I love how there can be so many ways to interpret this character. There's plenty of symbolism throughout that whole scene in the land of the dead that I'm sure psychoanalysts could pick apart for hours and days if they wanted to and ascribe meanings that are maybe what King intended, maybe not what King intended, or maybe he didn't give any thought about. But yeah, there's a lot, a lot you can do with that section. Jay, this section, I don't know if it was just because we were looking for it or not, but there was a lot of things that connected to a lot of other things that interested us and made us point out and say, what's King doing here? What what's of interest here? Uh, not only to his own work, uh, but to other work. And uh, we're going to point some of them out and see if our listeners find it interesting. Yeah. One of the things I put in this section here was, I'm not sure what rainbirds are, Mm. but John Rainbird was the antagonist in Firestarter, which we covered the movie of in a bonus episode. That's right. George C. Scott. That's right. So it was hard for me to read the word Rainbird and not think of Firestarter. And even though later in the book, we do find out that Rainbirds are some sort of bleaching equipment. Yeah. I don't know if King knew that when he invented the name of Rainbird or just some crazy coincidence that only I am spotting because (laughs) I've read a lot of Stephen King books and don't know anything about mining or what real Native American names might be. Yes. Just like Stephen King. When he wrote Firestarter. Uh, How about you? What kind of things do you have here? So I think it's Johnny Marinville when they enter the American West and get to the stage. He says that what's on the stage, which is what Billingsley and his friends have set up, which is a couch and a little bar. He says that the stage looks like if Eugene Ionesco had ever written an episode of The Twilight Zone, the set would probably have looked a lot like this. And that reminded me of a specific Twilight Zone episode called Five Characters in Search of an Exit. Now, that title of that episode is a variation on a Pirandello play called Six Characters in Search of an Author. And I know Eugene Inesco and Pirandello are two different people, but in my mind, they're both European dramatists. And, you know, I, I, I made the connection between the two. And then, you know, Five Characters in Search of an Exit, Six Characters in Search of an Author, there's those connections. The Twilight Zone. But my ultimate, like how this all wrapped up in my mind is spoilers for a episode of The Twilight Zone that is what, 60 years old at this point, 70 years old. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I didn't see it yet. <laughs> yeah. Five characters in search of an exit are, they focus in on, on what looks like a military man and he's in this sort of bare room and he can't figure out what's going on. And he eventually meets other people. And one of them's a ballet dancer and one of them's another archetype. And they're trying to figure out how do they get out of this place they're in and and they can't get out. And it ultimately turns out that they're, they're toys that have come to life. It's a prequel to Toy Story. Yeah, exactly. And the Pirandello play, Six Characters in Search of an Author, 
is about a playwright named Pirandello who is trying to put on a play. And in the midst of this play, six strange characters come on the stage and he realizes that they are characters from a earlier draft of the play that had been cut out and now they're looking to get back into the play. So again, it's all this metafictional stuff. But all this again reminds me of the fact that this book, Desperation, and the last book we read, Regulators, are a bunch of characters whose names are the same from one book to the next. Mm -hmm. And King had sort of saw them as a a, a troubadour group, right? Like, maybe I'll just yeah. use these characters for all my group, groups coming forward, and they'll be like little actors who play different parts in each one of my stories, each one of my tableaus. And so all this sort of built on itself to say, like, boy, it's turtles all the way down, isn't it? When it comes to yeah, King I and all this, this stuff, like I it. it just sort of the idea that the regulators was really a movie script, but also that these characters were sort of in the mind of tack is sort of like just playing this part of like, you know, random people to be killed or, or toyed with in some way. And who knows what's going to happen with these characters here in desperation. But like I said, all sorts of weird connections in my mind. To just extend your regulators point, Tack ultimately even used his superpowers to make the town into an actual set. He transformed the surroundings and the, the flora and fauna to be his vision to match the Western movies that he liked to watch yep. on TV. And so it was even more so like characters in a play or characters in a movie. I, yeah, I just love this. This is so insightful. Uh, and... I, I like how you say, you know, once again, turtles all the way down. For this. It's so good. And I absolutely adore these titles that you referenced, the five characters in search and the six characters in search. Like this is, those are such brilliant titles just in and of themselves. Yep. It's kind of like the once upon a time in insert place here titles. Yep. Good stuff. All right. Any other connections in the connection zone? There's a line that goes, Steve suddenly found himself hoping Mary Jackson was dead. That was awful. But in a case like this, dead might be better, mightn't it? Better than being under the spell of the Contas. And uh, of course, when you say dead is better, I can't help but think of Pet Cemetery because yep. sometimes dead is better. I'm sorry, that's my really, really bad Fred Gwynn impression. But this also reminded me of the melting Leon was played by <laughs> Paul McCrane in RoboCop when toxic waste gets spilled on him and uh, he starts to liquefy just before the police car hits him. Yep. And he just splats on the windshield. They have to turn on the windshield wipers to, <laughs> to get old poor Leon out of the way. Because sometimes dead is better. Yeah, that's not the only Pet Cemetery reference. I think it's Audrey before she turns totally to the evil side says, Sour ground is what the Shoshone called it, and that sour ground is where uh, they ended up burying Gage in Pet Cemetery, right? The ground's yeah. sour. The ground is sour. <laughs> That's my bad Fred Gwynn impression. Uh, did you say the two Utes? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's not the only Stephen King book that's referenced in this section. Um, I think Billingsley is refuting Audrey Weiler's sort of scientific explanation about what happened at the China mine and says, there are all kinds of stories about it. One is that they dug up a wasin, a kind of ancient earth spirit, and it tore the mine down. Another is that they made the tommy knockers mad. What? what, what? The tommy knockers? <laughs> yes. Tommy knockers, tommy knockers knocking at my door. Oh, how do you like that? 
I, I don't. Tommy Knockers is one of my least favorite Stephen King books, but <laughs> but the connection is kind of cool. The connection is kind of cool. Yeah. Well, after talking about all of those connections, what about connections to the Dark Tower? Any thinnies? All right. When the characters all get to the American West, they sort of think they're safe, right? Yeah. There's a storm going on outside and they're like, there's no way that, you know. They have that impenetrable booby trap of the glass bottles. <laughs> cans by and the bottles window. by the window. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, Billings like, he'll never find us here. We're, we're totally safe here. So they all get on stage and one of the characters says, come on, Tom, tell us a story. Help pass the time. And this reminded me of the wind through the keyhole mm. because we have a character who's telling a story to the rest of the characters and it's taking place during a storm, almost a type of Stark blast, one might say. Like this is a very unnatural storm that's hit, hit desperation, much like uh, the Stark blast was. So uh, sort of thin, but. It's stretching. It's stretching pretty far, but I'll allow it. I, I, I also think that this is just sort of a common thing people do during storms, right? Like we had a tornado warning here today and we were down in our basement and luckily we all had our phones so it didn't get to the point where we had to start telling each other stories. <laughs> you didn't have to start breaking apart the furniture to yeah. make a fire. Make a fire and start sitting around telling stories about <laughs> what things were like when we were young. No. Yeah, I'll allow it as a thinny. Um, let's see if you'll let this one pass muster. There is a brief line about somebody being like a piano player in the whorehouse. And I thought that was kind of like good old Sheb in both The Gunslinger and Wizard in Glass. Yeah. I, 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 anytime we're talking piano players in whorehouses, I'm all in. All right. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a cliche thing having the piano player in the whorehouse in a Western, but... Not every one of those is going to be a reference to Stephen King's Dark Tower books. No, hey. some, of, some of them will be to Westworld. Yes. That's the only other time. That <laughs> That's happens. the only other time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not, not, I think King uh, spent all of his time on other connections in this section and not so much on the Dark Tower stuff. So, however, there were many, many, many yucking it ups. And we have just chosen our two favorites. Why don't you kick us off, Jay? Sure. So the thing I chose for my yucking it up is Johnny Marinville is remembering a time that he was in a deadly car crash. And because he has this author's like extreme recall and he can slow things down in his memory and preserve every moment of something, even as terrible as this, he has still in his mind all these years later, the sound of the party mobile's collapsing roof, driving Rachel Turomov's head down into her neck splitting her skull open like a bone flower. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah, not good. So when the characters finally confront Audrey Weiler and she's starting to decompose, I guess, as as tax influence on her is intensifying. I think they that's the word they use is intensifying. Mm -hmm. And one of the characters said was going to grab her but he couldn't bring himself to do it because he knew his fingers would sink in. Now he could hear a plopping, pattering sound as parts of her began to liquefy and fall off in a kind of flesh rain. And, and I think that's the point where she runs off onto the balcony and then the balcony collapses on top of it. So like, there's just, I imagine, flesh everywhere. That's just like Leon, played by Paul <laughs> McCrane in Robocop, <laughs> when he's doused by toxic waste. They just needed some windshield wipers. <laughs> I thought that this was... A missed opportunity for King. 
I really wanted Audrey to fall off of the balcony and be liquid by the time she hit the ground mm. and actually just splat like a water balloon. Yeah. That's what I was hoping was going to be the, the last moment for her. But instead, it was just the collapse of the whole balcony. So we don't, I'm sure she's, Splattered. you know, pure Leon <laughs> at that point, but it's, uh, <laughs> Uh, it just it's just not in the in the text anyway all right well we want to thank our patrons for supporting the show they get access to exclusive patreon content such as bonus podcast episodes you too can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash two guys dark tower we'd love to have you there in addition to those bonus episodes we're putting up additional posts about stephen king and other things that uh, we might find of interest so sean what kind of fun stuff did you find in this section of desperation? Well, I didn't have a whole lot, but one of the things that sort of stirred my curiosity was that Johnny says he wasn't used to being called a shithead. He had won a National Book Award, after all. He had been on the cover of Time. He had also fucked America's sweetheart. Well, maybe that was sort of retroactive or something. And he wasn't used to being called a shithead. Uh, this Johnny Marinville is very full of himself, unlike the one in Regulators. And I dig yeah. it. Like, it's cool. And he kind of is a shithead. Yeah, oh, definitely. He definitely is a shithead. He, he's, a, <laughs> he's, he's a prick for sure. But it made me wonder, who had he fucked, right? Yeah. Who is this movie star that, that he had fucked at some point? And I think and ends up at some event pushing him into a pool at some L.A. party. And so I went on a, a little deep dive, and I found an article about people who have been called America's sweetheart. And it had a listing of like all of America's sweethearts from like the early 20th century uh, up till now. And based on sort of the time frame and Johnny Marinville's age, I sort of based it down to like, there's two people. It's either Debbie Reynolds or Elizabeth Taylor. And I'm thinking it's probably Elizabeth Taylor, hmm. just sort of based on dates. And, and the fact, like, I, if I remember correctly, there's a lot of talk of like uh, the jewelry that America's sweetheart was wearing when, when, uh, when he uh, when she pushed yes. him in the pool and like i sort of associate elizabeth taylor with like emeralds and diamonds probably because of those perfume commercials um if anyone else has any ideas of who johnny marinville could have been uh screwing we'd love to hear him how about you fun stuff i i had a couple one i thought it was pretty funny that there's a line that it doesn't surprise me at all that the land of the dead should turn out to be located in the suburbs of columbus ohio doesn't surprise me at all either man being somebody who has lived in the suburbs of Columbus, Ohio, that wouldn't surprise me either. <laughs> With King, you would have thought that maybe it was going to be New Jersey, but no. <laughs> That's too easy a target. <laughs> Besides, New Jersey has the best views of New York. That's true. And the other one was, I really liked how Audrey was still so pedantic and political while she was already possessed by tack and very carefully awaiting a chance to attack and kill David. So she's in tax like thrall and her body is slowly transforming to the point where she's growing taller. And this is happening to enough of a degree that Billingsley is like, something's not quite right. Can't put my finger on it, right? So but, this is but all I'm, happening. But I'm too busy looking at her legs to think about it. Why? <laughs> well, that's a big part of why he didn't, why he realized too late. But, um, but all of this is happening in Audrey's mind. And she's still able to say, it's a drift, not a shaft. And then when the topic of rainbirds comes up, she says, no, they're rainbirds, not emitters, or the other way around. I can't remember. Right. And because 
that was the the political thing like one of them hurt the wildlife more than the other and so the you know the the tree huggers were all there to <laughs> i guess uh in her mind were there to protest the emitters or the rainbirds or something and anyway all of this was still there but I just love that she's like this, you know, demon-possessed person, but still has the bandwidth to, to correct people along the way. We did talk about this at the beginning, but I, I really, you know, after the twist of of the last chapter, which is like, oh, tax not in Kali and Trajan anymore, mm -hmm. it didn't blow my mind. But I'm like, oh, that was cool. But then when we when it revealed that Audrey, who was basically the hero of Regulators, yeah, is not on the good guy side on this one. I was like, oh, another twist. Like, I dig it. Like, I'm, I'm really, I really like how this book is going along and it continuing to, to keep me engaged. But I thought that this was a neat idea that unlike Entragian, who's no longer there, right? Like, it's all tack for the most part. Like, he retains a little bit of Entragian to know, like, mm -hmm. I can read you your Miranda rights and I could act like a cop. But it's basically all tack. This one, it's, it's all Audrey. She just has this desire to do what Tack wants her to do. And all yes. of her own initiative is gone. So it's totally makes sense that she's going to continue to talk like a young geologist who knows her shit, like, because that's who she is. She just doesn't mm -hmm. have any, like her desire now is to, oh yeah, I also want to kill this young boy. Right. So right. I, I will continue to have my personality such as it is, which is, hey, why is this old guy looking at my legs? And I, I don't like that. And I'm going to talk about geology stuff and how things work. And I'm a smart woman who knows her job. I just so happen to also want to kill this boy when I get a chance. Uh, it's, a, it's a better way of doing demon possession. It's not boring. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. And it also completely <laughs> subverts my fun stuff about it, that I was a pedant admiring another pedant <laughs> in her pedantry. Well, yes. I mean, I do, I do enjoy that part too, because... It is fun that she can be that way. Anyhow, it, good stuff. Like I said, for a book that I had no interest in reading for a long time, it was just sort of like, eh, do I really want to read that book? The cover's sort of weird. These two books are connected. They're not like considered top tier King books. I'm really enjoying this so far. I'm really enjoying it too. And I like that it's kept you guessing and it's able to surprise you. And while I have read it once before, it's been so long that much of the detail is, you know, feels fresh to me. And I have enjoyed the journey thus far, and I, I expect to enjoy the rest of it as well. All right, let's talk about some other worlds than these. Jay, what else has been keeping your attention these last few weeks besides Stephen King? I'll mention two things. One was a little while ago, and the other is like right now. A little while ago is I recently rewatched all of the Harry Potter movies, like back to back to back over. Never heard of, never heard of it. Hey, yeah. about a week. Harry Potter. Never heard of them, huh? Never heard of them. I know that there are plenty of, of folks out there uh, who are big Harry Potter fans and maybe watch them uh, every year or get together with the group of friends and watch them together. Um, I have seen them one time in the past mm. and I wanted to just kind of re-engage with them. I don't know why it's just sort of random. Like they're on HBO. I can watch them now and it, it was convenient and uh, I really enjoyed them this time around. I, I think a little bit of distance and a little bit of familiarity mm. that I just kind of gotten from other sources here and there made me appreciate them all the more. So we really like them. 
So you said you had a second Other Worlds than these? Yes. I recently started watching the HBO series Succession. Mm. And I had avoided this show because it looked too much like some things in real life. And I was afraid of being reminded of those real life things and people. Um, I assumed it was a mashup of the Murdoch industry of TV shows. Mm. And I didn't really want to watch a dramatization of that type of business family dynamic. But in watching the show, it is Murdochy. It's a media, it's a family that's really wealthy and they own a media empire. But I don't know that it's like a send up or a critique of any one particular person or family or anything like that. Mm. And the show is basically it's I find it engaging. I think the performances are good. It's surprised me into laughter a bunch of times in ways that I'd never expected. And I'm enjoying it. I'm only in the fourth or fifth episode of the first season. Mm. And I know that the third season is premiering or just premiered. Yep. It's won a bunch of awards. The show is really popular, critical acclaim and everything. So figure to give it a shot. But in my household, our nickname for the show is the asshole show. So <laughs> it is a show filled with pretty despicable people doing pretty lousy things all the time. And if you can live with that, uh, then you can enjoy the show for what it is. Sounds good. I have not watched it yet, but I'd like to. And that's Succession, available on HBO. And what about you? Yeah, so I found myself, when I'm not listening to podcasts, which I try not to do all the time, because it can be distracting from work, I, I listen to a lot of music. Hmm. But recently, I had found myself listening to a lot of the same music over and over again. So same artists, same albums. Yeah, I had a lot of Prince, Tom Petty, Foo Fighters, and... Not that it was getting boring because I could like it, but I'm like, hey, there's a lot more out there that I'm sure I'm missing. And uh, why don't I expand my knowledge? And so recently, Rolling Stone had updated one of their 500 albums of all time list. And I said, hey, that would probably be a good thing. Can't hurt to listen to all 500 albums, right? Wow. So rather than do the most recent list, I'm working on the 2012 list and I am going from album. 500 to one, because I figured I'd start at the bottom of the list because I've listened to all the Beatles albums a bunch of times. So when I get to the top of the list, I'll be like, oh yeah, I remember these. So uh, I am about 70 albums into it of the 500 over the past few weeks. And uh, yeah, I'm consistently listening to every album once and it's expanded my knowledge a little bit. So that's good. About how many hours of music does that add up to? Is there any estimation in the, the playlist? Uh, so I haven't actually created a playlist. I'm like just finding each album as it comes up on the list and then looking at, um, but, um, it's, it's interesting you say that because I'm always excited when, when it's an album from like the sixties or seventies or eighties, because those were when there was just vinyl LPs. And so they tended to be between 30 and 40 minutes long. That was just the way people did albums That's back all then. You could fit. Yeah. You could, all you could fit. You could do a little bit more than that, but generally, you know, people would write eight three-minute songs and be done and over. So you, you, they'd be shorter. Then you get into the 90s and 2000s with CDs, and you could tell that some of these people are like, all right, if I can fill 70 minutes on a CD, I'm going to fill 70 minutes on a CD. And that's not always the best decision by some of these, uh, these artists. Even on the 500 Greatest Albums, there's times when you're like, oh, that's a lot of filler in this. So hmm. I don't know. If you want to assume 45 minutes over 500 albums, you do the math. What is that? an hour and a half, 250s, like 375 hours worth of music, maybe. That's just a ballpark. Yeah. I'm just guessing Good here. Estimate. Um, yeah, so I get through a few albums a day, and it's a nice mix. 
I can dig it. And I, I like your motivation to uh, just discover things that you have no awareness of, even if they've been around for a long time. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I chose the 2012 list, because I have a feeling that the most recent list that Rolling Stone put out, which I think is 2020, is probably going to be a lot more newer artists. And I'm an old man now, so I'm sort of set into my musical <laughs> ways. Like, Hey, I'm at least a few days older than you, so yes. watch it. Yes. All right. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Kane. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover Desperation, Part 4, The China Pit, God is Cruel. These titles. Oh, man, these titles. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. Yeah, let's do the nonsense. <laughs>